Uh, as a family, we uh, recently got a PlayStation 4. I know the PlayStation 5 is out, but uh, we just got the PlayStation 4 because when the 5 comes out, the 4 is cheaper. So, so uh, we got the PlayStation 4, and uh, we, yeah, we got it secondhand, and there were lots of fun games. And, but there's one game that my girls enjoy playing more than any other game, <laughs> and uh, that is the game of The Sims. Okay, hands up if there's any Sims fans out there. Represent, yes. Okay, teenage girls, teenage girls, mums, and youth pastors. Okay, that's uh, awesome. We know what their demographic is, so uh, that's uh, marvelous. And uh, but our girls have a have a particular Sims. It's Sims Four with the Island Living Expansion Pack. Okay, it's not just Sims. Sims Four with the Island Living Expansion Pack and. Uh, I had, yeah, I didn't know what that was. I had to go down and look and write it down in my sermon notes because I have no idea what Sims we play, but it's the uh, Sims 4 Island Living Expansion Pack. And uh, I tried it once after installing the game and I got confused because literally I couldn't make my avatar walk. I, I, I didn't know how to make, I think it was a her, move forward at all. And so I just quit and they're uh, having hours and hours of fun. But one thing that I've noticed when the girls are playing Sims is that they will spend an inordinate amount of time um, on just choosing their avatar. Because there's so many options, right? It could be black, it could be Caucasian, it could be white, it could be Latina. Then you have to choose the hair color. It could be red, it could be brown, it could be blonde, it could be some other shade. Uh, then the hairstyle could be curly, it could be um, straight, it could be shaved, it could be like a pixie cut, it could be long hair. Uh, and then, you know, the body type of the avatar, uh, size zero, medium build, heart shape, um, hourglass, plus size, rectangle, triangle, mermaid. That's an option. Okay, so there's all these different types, and they spend like an hour doing that. I'm like, you haven't started the game yet. But then that screen's done, and it's like, okay, good. Now you've chosen your avatar. Let's play the game. Only the next screen isn't the game. The next screen is the outfits. And so they spend another hour on the outfits just to get their avatar looking like they want him or her to look. Um, But they seem to enjoy it, and it keeps them out of trouble. So... Win-win, right? So this morning, we're going to get the chance to play Sims ourselves. Uh, only instead of Sims, this is... I, I apologize in advance. Because this is such a pastoral thing to do. Uh, have a guess what word I've made out of Sims? Sins. <laughs> I, like I said, I apologize in advance. It's so cheesy, but... Uh, it works, and hopefully you might remember. And, uh, and, and so we get to choose which sin character or which sin avatar most represents us. So our options are that we have self-righteous Richard. Sorry, they're male names, but you'll understand why. So we have self-righteous Richard there on the right, and we have self-indulgent Ian there on the left. Um, so, and then we have the loving dad there in the middle. And uh, so, you know, the question is, which of these sins, which of these sin categories most represents you? Um, and no, you can't choose dad, because dad is God, and you can't be God, okay? So you have to choose either self-righteous Richard or self-indulgent Ian. So, um, yeah, it's not even five minutes into the sermon, and the pastor's already asking you to, uh, to out yourself. What is your sin? 
What is your sin of choice? What is the thing that you struggle with? And, um, and, if, uh, and these aren't specific sins. These are what's known as maybe categories of sins, right? Is that self-indulgence, underneath self-indulgence, there's a bunch of other sins, right? And then under self-righteousness, there's a bunch of other sins under the categories of those sins. And so this one... Um, over here, actually, so theologians have words for these categories of sins, and uh, this one over here is called antinomianism, okay, which means kind of like freedom from the law. I can do whatever I want, antinomianism, and then the one over there is called legalism. So we've got legalism with Richard and antinomianism with Ian. Those aren't important for you to remember unless you choose to go uh, look them up later, which you're free to do. So self-indulgence and self-righteousness. Okay, now maybe this isn't you all the time, okay? Maybe you're not always self-indulgent or you're not always self-righteous, but on your worst days, which one of these would you, if you were left alone to your own devices, which one would you naturally gravitate towards, self-indulgence or self-righteousness? So, hands up if you identify with self-indulgent Ian most. Hands up if there's anyone here. You you have to choose one. Okay, I see there's a lot of legalists here. That's okay, because we're going to get to you now in a minute. Okay? And then hands up if you identify with self-righteous Richard the most. Okay, good. And then then I see there's a bunch that identify with the Father. I said you couldn't do that. Okay? But uh, self-indulgent Ian or self-righteous Richard. Now that we've got our confession out of the way, you know, confession's good for the soul, let's have a little bit of a catch-up where we've gone so far. Uh, week one in our Lenten series, we looked at pressing on through the desert at Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13. And then week two, we looked at how Jesus pressed on so that we can press in. And Luke 13, uh, 31 to 35 shows Jesus as our mother hen who longs longs to gather us under his wings. And then last, we looked at pressing on to fruitfulness, um, which with that new story, if you remember, of the temple massacre and of the tower that fell, of the 18 people who died, and then uh, the parable of the fig tree and how those two things are connected. And it was, it was really cool, actually, to see God move uh, through the worship time and through the message as we saw both the urgency of the message of the gospel and the grace of the message of the gospel, both urgency and grace. And this morning, uh, we're focusing on pressing on back home uh, with the story of the prodigal son. And this morning's message, or, or, or this morning's text, invites us to ask ourselves three questions, which, number one, we've already done. Do I relate more with a self-indulgent child or with a self-righteous child? Number two, what does it mean to be spiritually far from home? And number three, how can I get home? These are the three questions that we will be kind of looking at through the text this morning. So, uh, yeah, Lord, I thank you that your word says in James chapter 4, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to you and you will come near to us. And so we engage our minds and our hearts and we take tentative little baby steps of faith maybe towards you. Um, and we trust, Lord, that if James chapter 4 is true, that you will come near to us. Help us have the faith and the courage, Lord, to move nearer to you. Amen. So the summary, um, well, 
So it, it, our passage starts with uh, Luke 15, verse 11 to 12, which says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay, now, this story, this story of the prodigal son, is uh, actually part of a trilogy um, of stories that Jesus is, is uh, sharing. And he's telling these three stories as a response, right? Jesus often tells stories as a response, like we heard last week. There was, uh, you know, the temple massacre and the tower falling down, so Jesus tells the story of the fig tree. Well, this week, Jesus is also telling three stories, and these three stories are in response. What are they in response to? Luke chapter 15 verse 1 tells us now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's the picture, that's the image. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And then he tells the story of the lost sheep, which ends with Jesus saying this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then Jesus tells the story of the lost coin, which ends in a very similar vein. I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus continues with uh, story three, the story of the lost son, the return of the king of the trilogy. It's, it's a longer story. It's a great story. There's special effects and everything, and it ends in a similar way to part one and part two, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this is the trilogy of stories that Jesus is uh, sharing. Now, of course, you know, you know, um, what it's like when you ask someone a simple question or you make a simple statement and then half an hour they're still talking in response and you gradually are inching your way towards the door hoping that they'll wrap up anytime soon but they're still talking and it's starting to get awkward, okay? I reckon that the Pharisees were regretting that they complained about Jesus eating with the sinners. They said one little statement, and Jesus comes along and tells three stories. Not one story, not two stories, but three stories. And uh, he, it's like he doesn't know when to shut up. But that's the point, right? Is that Jesus wants the self-righteous Pharisees to know what it exactly is that motivates him to sit down and fellowship and spend time and enjoy the company of the sinners, right? He, he loves doing it. It's what he loves doing. And so he tells stories why he enjoys the company of sinners. So story number three, if you're not familiar with it, the story of the lost son is, it goes like this. There was a dad with two sons, as we read here in this verse. And then this younger son, who we call self-indulgent Ian, asks for his inheritance. He gets it. He wastes it. He regrets it. He slums it on a farm working with pigs, uh, which is every good upstanding Jew's worst nightmare. Uh, then he comes home within his, with his tail between his legs, and his dad throws him a party. He throws him a knees up. Then the other son that we're calling self-righteous Richard, he throws a hissy fit uh, because his no-good son has been thrown this all-you-can-eat party after losing everything 
in Las Vegas or Monte Carlo or wherever it was he ended up. So that's the story in a nutshell. Now, we tend to call this story the story of the prodigal son, right? And uh, I always thought that the word prodigal meant the son who was sorry or the son who came home or the son who realized the error of his ways or something like that, right? But the word prodigal actually means uh, wasteful. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly or being wastefully extravagant. So that's what the word prodigal means, is that self-indulgent Ian blew his entire half of the inheritance. That's what the word prodigal means. Um, But this story isn't just about Ian. It's also about Richard. It's about the one who stayed because, in a way, both sons were lost. Both sons were far from home. And so this morning, I want to rename this story the story of the lost sons. Not the prodigal son, but the lost sons. Because both of them needed to make a journey home, but only one of them made it. And it's also a story about the love of the father, right? And so, yes, I do want us to look at Ian, and I want us to look at Richard. But more than that, I want us to be observing the father, because... um, it's about his love. And, and remember that uh, verse 1 to 3 tells us that Jesus is telling this story because he's trying to explain to people why he as a representative of the Father loves sitting down and spending time and eating with the worst of the worst, with the quote-unquote sinners, with the people who would maybe never feel like they have a place Uh, here in church on a Sunday morning, which is sad and not true, but maybe that's how some people feel. And so, yeah, this is about two lost sons, but it's also about the love of a father. Amen? So the first thing that we learn about the father's love is that the father's love lets us go, right? That song, If You Love Them, Set Them Free, I'm like, what a stupid lyric, you know? Uh, But here here it is, you know, that the father's love Let's them leave. Let's them go. Uh, Luke 15, verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I, I assumed that the father knew a little bit about the son, about Ian. So if he gave him that money, he probably had a fair inkling of what he would be doing with that money. And so Ian wants out. And his father gives him the freedom to leave. And this must have broken the father's heart, but he still let him go. He didn't lock him up. He didn't say, okay, that's it. Your freedom is limited. He let him him go. And I know because we live in Canada, and by living in Canada, we are we win the lottery of richest people in the world, right? That I know that there are many of us this morning who are lost in self indulgence. Who think that, that by using our Father's resources simply to get ourselves more stuff, we will find happiness and meaning. Now, maybe it's not wild living in a far-off country. Maybe your version of self-indulgent wild living looks a little bit more respectable, a bit more suburban, a bit more rural. Maybe for you, wild living is a second home or a third car, or a second car, or an extension on the house that you don't really need, or overseas vacations, or the latest phone. Maybe wild living for you is 
more RRSPs and RESPs, more investments. Maybe wild living for you is marijuana or maybe alcohol at the end of the day. Maybe your version of wild living is a new skidoo or a fishing set or a yet another streaming service that, to be honest, you don't actually need or faster internet. Or maybe it's spas or pedicures or manicures. Maybe it's just this season's latest look. Wild living isn't just going overseas and wasting cash, right? Few of these things that I just mentioned are bad in and of themselves. You know, for some of you, a third car is a necessity. But for others, it's just wild living. And I'm not sure where the line between legit expenses and wild living is. But regardless of what that thing is, wild living is that thing that you must have because you think you deserve it and you obtain it using God's resources without any reference to him, to the one who gave you the resources in the first place. In short, how we spend our money is where we find out where our self-indulgence is, where our wild living is. And God, in his love, will allow us to go into the far country of our wild living, maybe because this is the only way that we will ever find that it does not satisfy our souls. Right? It's only after blowing a couple of hundred bucks on that thing that you or I then go, huh didn't really do what I thought it it would do. It didn't scratch that itch. Maybe it did even for five seconds, but now I'm back to wanting the next thing. He lets us go into the far country. And God also lets self-righteous Richard go as well, right? Self-righteous Richard, um, he wasn't wild living. He stayed home. Uh, So in what way did the father's love let uh, Richard go? Well, it's not quite as clear, but in verse 25, we have a clue. You see, what's happened is that, uh, moving forward in the story, Ian has now returned home from his overseas adventures. The father has killed the choice cow. Uh, The caterers have arrived. Word is spreading around the house and the village and the community. Uh, The servants are all talking. So everyone knows that Ian is home. And where do we find Richard? We find him out in the field, trying to earn his father's approval probably feeling rather bitter. Richard chose to leave home, just like Ian chose to leave home, not to a far-off country of wild living, but to the lonely field of trying to earn his dad's love. And his father lets him. This is the love of the father. He will respect our decisions, even if it breaks his heart. And he will let us go to a far-off country and waste our inheritance. And he will let us go to a far field and try to earn our inheritance. He will let us do that. But either way, self-indulgence and self-righteousness take us far away from the Father. And the Father lets us go. But then, after letting us go, the Father's love then looks down the road. You know, God lets us walk away. He lets us walk away, but if we were to turn around and look back, we wouldn't see a father wiping his hands of us. Instead, what we would see is a father wiping his eyes as he watches us go, as he longs for our return, as he looks down the road. And for some of you this morning, God is looking down the road 
and he's waiting for you to turn around and to return. What does that look like for self-indulgent Ian? Well, here, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, we don't know how sincere Ian was being at this moment. I don't know if it was true repentance or if it was just, how can I make the best of a bad situation? But regardless, uh, he turned around. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The father is looking and waiting for us to repent of our self-indulgence. And when we realize that these things that do not and will not ever satisfy us, we turn around and see God there with his arms open wide, running in our direction. So I wonder this morning, what self-indulgence is it that you need to be repenting of and come home? What about self-righteous Richard? Where do we see the father's love looking down the road at, at, at Richard. Verse 28, again, after Ian's returned, after the younger son's returned, the older brother became, became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. You see how God's grace compels him to meet us where we're at? When we repent of our addiction to stuff from trying to fill in that hole that only God can fill, um, God meets us there on the road with an embrace. So in other words, uh, or on the other hand, if we're struggling with trying to earn God's love through work and through self-righteousness, God comes out into the field of our fleshly efforts and he says, why don't you just come back to the house? Stop working Stop striving, just come back to the house. And this isn't in the text, but I suspect that if self-righteous Richard had turned around at that moment and come back to the house, that the party wouldn't have just been a homecoming party for Ian. I believe it would have been a homecoming party for Richard as well. It would, and Richard would have eaten the cow and he'd have worn the robes and he'd have had the ring on his finger. The father has enough for anyone who repents of their self-indulgence or their self-righteousness. And we see this in our next point. You see, the Father's love doesn't just let us go, it doesn't, and the Father's love doesn't just look down the road, but the Father's love lavishes. We don't use that word lavish much, but it's that sense of wild living. God does his version of wild living, but it's wild loving. When we repent of our addiction to wasting God's resources or our addiction to earning God's approval, when we come home to our generous heavenly Father, this is the scene that we encounter. But the Father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. God loves throwing parties. God is a party animal. 
He loves throwing parties for you. God will take any excuse to have an ease up, to have a party. And so that's what it's like for self-indulgent Ian. But what about self-righteous Richard? He, you know, we're out in the field. We feel left out. We feel stuck. We feel alone. Uh, trying to earn God's favor through our best efforts, which the Bible says are like filthy rags. And God meets us in the field. And this is what we hear. My son, my daughter, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. And so this morning, if you are trapped in trying to uh, prove God of, that you are worthy of his love, Listen to these words that God speaks to your life. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. This is incredible. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Through the Holy Spirit, the Father is always with us, and through Jesus Christ, everything, that full inheritance is ours. Colossians 3 says this, since then you have been raised with Christ. Look at the tense. Since this has already happened, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If we were to apply that to the story, it would be the Father saying, I already love you. You don't have to earn it. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. One layer of Jesus, one layer of the Father. Is there anyone who's more secure than someone who is wrapped in Christ, wrapped in God? Everything he has, this eternal weight of glory is yours in Christ. You cannot earn that. To think that you can earn that is ludicrous. It's absurd. It's frankly offensive. You can only receive it, so come in from the field and eat the fattened calf of life in Christ. And when you receive and appropriate this lavish gift for yourself, it's easy to celebrate this love with others. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I wonder what it would have looked like if the older brother, if Richard, had entered into that and said, yeah, you know what, we do have to celebrate. Receiving God's lavish love is contagious. Now, thinking back to the start of the sermon, do you remember why Jesus told the parable in the first place? He told it. Because the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's why Jesus told the parable, this whole trilogy of stories of the, of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons all came about because of the lie that we're told that God hates hanging out with screw-ups. And it's an awful lie. Firstly, because God loves hanging out with screw-ups. This is what Jesus coming to earth was all about And secondly, those self-righteous Pharisees are just the kind of screw-ups that Jesus would love hanging out with if only they would realize it. If only they would come in from the field. If only they would realize that they are screw-ups, then they would have the fellowship of the Father 
But I think that what was going on in the Pharisees' minds, and I think that probably a number of us here can can relate, is that, yeah, if I am a screw-up, then at least I'm not a tax collector. At least I'm not a sinner. At least I have a respectable sin that looks like I'm hard-working. Instead of muttering, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners, what they should have shouted is, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Even sinners like us, we're also included in the party. And so the tax collectors and the, and the sinners represented by self-indulgent Ian, they were coming home. They were already eating around the table with Christ. They found a place at the table. They'd, tr- they'd, they'd traded in these years of self-indulgence for the true joy of fellowship with Jesus. But the Pharisees represented by self-righteous Richard were still out in the field and they were grumbling, all these years I've worked for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. You see, um, you see, the self-righteous always tend to view God as the one demanding obedience and handing out orders. And the self-indulgent always tend to see God as the one stifling freedom. But the repentant on both sides of the aisle get to see God in the person of Jesus Christ, not handing out orders or unthinkingly demanding obedience, not stifling freedom or holding us back from being our true selves. But instead, we see God in the person of Jesus Christ welcoming everyone in by inviting them to a meal. And so this morning, as you listen to this message, are you a self-indulgent Ian or a self-righteous Richard? Are you living it up in the far country of your desires and your longings? If your mantra is, well, it's mine, I earned it, I deserve it, I'm going to have it, then I invite you to repent and to come home and find the true riches and true satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus. Or perhaps you're a self-righteous Richard or a self-righteous Ruth, right? You're working hard for God and and your God is always standing over you with a bit of a frown, never really happy with what you are doing. And your mantra is, God, I'm going to make you proud. I'm going to show you what I'm made of. Stop it. Stop it. Because that table full of sinners and tax collectors and repentant, self-indulgent types has room for a recovering Pharisee like you. So let me leave us this morning with another one of our lectionary texts. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-19. Just let the Spirit speak to you as I read this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, even ourselves. I think we're included in that. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, from the Father, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So friends, I invite you, I implore you to press on home to come in from the far country of self-indulgence and to come in from that far field of self-righteousness and eat your fill of the goodness of God.
as the worship team comes up, let me lead us in a prayer of homecoming. And if this reflects you just simply in your mind or maybe under your breath, whisper the prayer along with me. Father, I repent of my self-indulgence. True life can only be found in you. Would you forgive me for trying to be happy with the things that I've accumulated with your money? Help me to come home and know the joy of the heart of the Father. And if you're struggling with self-righteousness this morning, then please pray along with me. Father, I repent of my self-righteousness. True life can only be found in you. Would you forgive me for trying to be happy with trying to prove my worth to you? Help me to come home and know the joy of the heart of the Father. And Jesus, I thank you that you paid for the sins of the self-indulgent and the self-righteous on the cross. Thank you that the price you paid was your own life. And through faith, Lord, I accept this gift. I accept this gift that I cannot earn and I cannot pay back and I cannot return. I accept it with hands that are empty. Lord, would you fill them with your love? Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Empower me to live a life of faith in you from this moment onwards. In Jesus' name, amen.